Welcome back to the Future of Feeling podcast. I'm your host, Caitlin Ugalik Phillips, and I'm bringing you interviews with some great minds helping build empathy in our tech-obsessed world. Today, I'm talking to Rob Morris. I am such a fan of the concept behind Rob's work. It's all about encouraging people to spend their time online helping each other. Rob is a data scientist who took a major pivot from academia to app development for a pretty unique reason. We talk a bit about why he created this bot named Coco, the mental health crisis among kids in the U.S., and the science behind why it feels good to help other people. We also get into what keeps companies like Facebook from implementing helpful, empathetic tech like Coco on their platforms. to connect with you again. It's been a while. Yeah, likewise. And I'm hoping that we could just kind of start with a little bit of an intro, kind of tell people who you are, what you do, and why you got into the, the area of tech that you are in. Yeah, sure. So I'm Rob. I'm a co-founder of Coco. And Coco is a tech-based nonprofit um, that provides digital mental health treatments and services. We've reached about 2 million people so far, uh, mostly adolescents. And I got into this work uh, 10 years or so ago, I believe. And at the time I was a PhD student at MIT, uh, a struggling PhD student, I should say. Um, I was very ill-prepared for the rigors of that place. Um, I had a lot of stress, a lot of depression. And in true sort of MIT form, my solution was to hack my way out of it. And so I started kind of in my spare time building this platform, which eventually became Coco. And the core of it being, um, can we find a way to sort of crowdsource empathy um, uh, from people around the internet in a productive way? And so the way that it worked, if I remember correctly, at least at the beginning, was people who had a concern could kind of share that with um, this network and get responses from other people? Yep, exactly. Um, so it's a very structured structured uh, platform. It's not kind of like a typical peer support platform where people are sort of matched up and having long conversations or, you know, a, a forum on Reddit or Facebook where, you know, you can kind of write a five paragraph essay about everything that's going wrong and, and then sort of asynchronously people chime in and offer support. It's very different. It's very structured. It's almost like as condensed as Twitter might be. And we're asking people in the network to do very little. Um, we're trying to make it so that they don't uh, make it so it's really hard for them to fail. And we do this so that we can empower just um, peers, not necessarily clinicians or therapists who all help each other. And it's really this very simple idea of empowering this network to help people find more hope in stressful situations. So that's really at its core, all we're asking people to do is help someone think more hopefully about something stressful that's going on in their lives. And then you've integrated AI into it a bit as well. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Um, we use AI in a lot of respects. So, in this peer support element, which uh, we've just been discussing, AI is kind of behind the scenes constantly monitoring, moderating uh, and monitoring everything that goes on. So if someone creates a post on Coco, you know, a typical post might be something about, you know, a, a boyfriend not texting you back or um, a friend, um, you know, um, sort of 
abandoning you and uh, feeling lonely, we, we tend to cater to younger individuals, adolescents. Um, but we scan every single post that comes in and we look for cases that are more serious. So someone might be disclosing thoughts of suicide or self-harm. They may be struggling with a severe eating disorder. And we spent many years training up what we call a text classifier um, using uh, deep learning technology. And what this does is it's able to automatically classify the posts that come in and say, okay, this looks like someone is in crisis, they need um, immediate attention, versus this looks like it's more appropriate um, for our peer support network. So we monitor and moderate with AI at the post side when people are asking for help. And then we also do the same for people who are responding. So we want to make sure our respondents are not um, you know, writing anything malicious or, or even anything that's just mildly ill-considered, even if their intentions are good. So again, we try to make the, the response element really easy, really simple. We even provide sort of pre-scripted um, little segments that people can work from. It's, it's highly scaffolded, but we have machine learning running um, throughout to moderate. And then the last thing, we use AI for, at least right now, is we work with large online networks, large social networks and platforms, and we use AI to scan all their content and find individuals in distress. So someone who might be posting on a social network, talking about self-harm or suicide, um, someone who might be searching for that content, and we use our AI to find those individuals, and then we find ways to intercept them and deploy our interventions directly on that platform. So one really cool thing about Coco is it really is literally reaching people where they are. So as soon as someone is, you know, showing some intention or sign that they are calling out for help, we're able to answer them and, and treat them essentially right on that platform, like in the direct message channel or, or what have you. So yeah, and some AI is kind of always behind the scenes. Uh, we don't lead with that. It's, it's you know, the, the main focus is the people and the interactions there, but it's a really important supporting role. And it sounds like empathy obviously was kind of part of the initial impetus for creating something like this, but what are some of the um, specific places you see empathy in your work? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say the most interesting and surprising and most important, really, element of, of COCO uh, was something we didn't necessarily design for originally. The the way it was originally conceptualized, it, again, this was sort of a little side project I was tinkering on at MIT. It was sort of a way for me to grab random people off the internet and help me think more realistically and optimistically about, you know, the little struggles in my life. And it was very much a kind of a consumption experience. And I didn't really think that it would be that you know, beneficial to be a respondent. I thought we might have to pay people, you know, a few cents to do this. But in the early experiments, I heard just, you know, um, feedback, uh, unsolicited feedback from people saying it was really helpful um, to help other people in this way. Um, so there's like kind of a germ of an idea there. And then when we launched it, we opened it up so anyone asking for help can go on and help other people. And a few interesting things happened there. One is, on average, most people asking for help went on to help three or four other people. So it was not hard to get that behavior started. And then all the feedback we got was 
along the lines of it was really helpful to get all this crowdsourced feedback and support. You know, the, the responses were super meaningful and profound and all that. But what was really helpful was me helping other people. And we explored that even empirically. We teamed up with Columbia University, and we found that people who help others the most on COCO are the ones who show the most pronounced reductions in, say, depression symptoms. So there's this huge idea of helping others to help yourself that is now kind of the fulcrum or the center of our platform. And it really speaks to me to this idea that having the structured way to empathize with another person um, has a lot of value for the individual. There's some sort of selfish um, value you can get from doing this, from thinking deeply about another person's problems and trying to reframe or restructure it for them. Um, you're empathizing with that person. Um, there's a feeling of sort of kinship that I think happens. But in the process, you're you're practicing skills that you can then turn back on yourself. It's sort of like this idea of, you know, if you're stressed and struggling, if you're hating on yourself, it's this exercise of, well, you know, what would you say to another person? And we tend to be more kind and more empathic to other people. And so we're kind of using that to create this habit of empathy towards others that we can then turn back towards our, ourselves. It's like a great positive feedback loop almost. Yes, yes. I love that you described it as a structured place for empathy, and I want to talk about that a little bit because I feel like with social technology, there is this kind of illusion of structure, right, because you'll have Twitter where, you know, you have a certain number of characters and mm-hmm. people see things in a certain way and you reply in a certain way, and then it's the same, you know, Facebook, all these others, like boxes that you put words in, um, but then we've kind of see, seen how things just kind of run amok and you can lose control really quickly. And th- those are the spaces where empathy can be kind of hard to access and hard to find. And so it's interesting thinking about a structured place for empathy and you also use the word practice. And so it's almost just like if you need kind of an empathy boot camp <laughs> for yourself or for others, mm-hmm. you know, that like being more intentional about actually making a space to do that and practice it. I I wrote a little bit about empathy as a muscle, and I wonder if mm-hmm. you... Yeah, I mean, so there, there's two things you mentioned that I think are really interesting. It's sort of the question of how can we do this by providing more structure in the platform, and then this question of, you know, can empathy be a muscle that you build up over time, at least from my perspective? I would say that the benefit we have from Coco on that first point is we're not a free speech platform. So we don't have to walk this sort of razor's edge of moderating things and sticking to kind of a community policy that's almost impossible to arbitrate perfectly. Um, We are able to moderate things pretty aggressively. So if a response doesn't quite look like it might be appropriate or kind or, um, you know, uh, good natured, um, we don't really have to worry about offending, you know, large swaths of the population. And I I even have had meetings with Facebook where, you know, a few people there were like, well, I'm so envious that you have this kind of structure where you can, you know, um, enforce things like that. So the I think that's really important. When people think about Coco and I describe what we do, 
a lot of people get, you know, rightly so, I think, worried that it's going to be this free-for-all. It's going to look like YouTube comments and stuff, but it's a very different platform when you don't have to make these close calls on what is or isn't appropriate. Um, it's um, We have a ton of flexibility there. Your second question of, you know, is empathy a muscle? And do people get better at it over time? This is a really interesting question. Um, I'm glad you brought it up because I hadn't thought about it like that in a while. I think there's a way to empirically test this. Um, but anecdotally, I can say I've seen people come onto the platform and struggle a little bit in the sense that their responses are good, but not super profound or that helpful. But I see over time, um, people start to improve. You get a lot of great feedback and um, from the platform, so you get thank you notes um, from people, and it's sort of a way to sort of benchmark how you're doing. And some of these thank you notes can get really um, amazing and touching. In fact, we have a million uh, written so far, and we have a database just of thank you notes that include people saying they're crying or tearing up in a, in a good way. Um, I will also say that, yeah, it's it's amazing to to see all this stuff. So you can kind of get a sense of what's resonating and what's not as you practice. And I feel that when I use it myself, so this is, again, just an anecdotal thing, um, but I, I really start to have to, I have to think for a couple of minutes really deeply about a stranger I know very little about. Um, I responded to someone the other day who was, you know, 15 years old, they had been suspended from school multiple times. Um, they had to kind of have homeschooling. They're just in and out of different um, school settings and all, all these institutions that failed them. And I could glean that from just a five-sentence post. And I'm really thinking hard about this kid, this individual, um, and it's this sort of mental exercise where you have to kind of put yourself in their shoes and find a way to validate their experience, show them that you've heard uh, heard them and thought deeply about them, and then try and nudge them to a more kind of flexible or, or, or hopeful, not a neat, naive perspective. But doing that, it is like a, a cognitive exercise and a mental muscle. And I, I find that I'm a little more tolerant of people uh, in the day if I, if I do this a little bit in the morning. Um, mm -hmm. You know, someone cuts me off and I think, well, I don't really know this person. Like, what is going on in this person's life? Um, you know, all I see is a snapshot behavior of someone driving aggressively. But, you know, people are fragile and the human experience is very difficult. And I think Coco is a way to remind yourself of that and that we all struggle. Um, but hopefully it's, you know, set up so that you don't get that kind of compassion fatigue it's these very sort of bite-sized moments but i definitely feel that there is some kind of empathic um training that happens here but it would be you know worth testing scientifically for sure as you're talking about this and describing it i'm thinking about how i wake up in the morning i look at social media and when i go to bed at night i'm going through tiktoks or i'm looking at um Instagram stories or Twitter or whatever it is, because I feel like I need to keep up with what's going on. And I'm really going to those places because I want to understand other people's experiences, see what's going on in other people's lives. But I do, 
I feel that compassion fatigue just from, you know, scrolling through and reading a bunch of tweets or watching a bunch of TikToks for 20 minutes, 30 minutes. Last night in bed, I was on TikTok and I came across one where there was a nurse in a COVID ward and she mm-hmm. played for everyone the sound of the machines that are going off and alarming that the person's not getting any oxygen, but they can't do anything about it. And, you know, I, I, at that point I had been scrolling for like an hour. I didn't, I mean, it intellectually affected me, but I'm like, where is the emotion? I, I feel numb about this. And Mm -hmm. I, I, I see in something like what you're describing and maybe it goes back to it being more structured that you you are able to be maybe more intentional about understanding others' experiences and taking it like slowing it down, I guess maybe, and having um, just using the muscle metaphor I'm thinking about. It's almost like I'm getting up in the morning and I'm like running a marathon without stretching. And I think a lot of people <laughs> are doing that. You know what I mean? And like maybe if I and others got up in the morning and, you know, talked to one other person <laughs> and really empathetically talked to them for a few minutes, um, maybe that would make a difference. I don't know. That's what we should do um, our study on. Let's do that. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. And, uh, you know, I, I have this similar experience. I, I've recently gone off Twitter. Hopefully it stays this time. But, yeah, you you look at things that are just, you know, so depressing and you can't really make much of an impact you sort of absorb it and you have an emotion um you know frustration or or sadness or anger and it doesn't really go anywhere it just holds within your body and you hold your phone and you kind of go on to the next piece of information and there's no sort of you know immediate benefit um to you um for absorbing this kind of pain, really. Um, The thing that Coco is able to do for people is you get really positive feedback very quickly. Um, And I think it's partly because the bar is pretty low. A lot of people are writing in and sort of unveiling their vulnerabilities and saying things they've never said to anyone before. And just a few kind words can make a huge difference in that person's life. And so you can, you know, practice empathizing with a person and get some immediate positive feedback. You know, you can have someone say, thank you so much. Just maybe cry tears of joy. You're an amazing person. Thank you so much. And you can get just these thank you notes that come in very quickly. Um, And I think that's important. Like it's hard to practice empathy and stay empathic when you don't see like the fruits of that effort mm. or that kind of sensitivity. Yeah. And you've, and you've built in the sort of breaks, the technology to kind of see if things are, you know, going into dangerous territory. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, we don't really have a lurking function where you can kind of just scroll through and, see what people have written and so forth. We yeah. we kind of make you <laughs> respond. So it's it's not something that has the kind of engagement and retention metrics that a typical social platform has. So we are asking people to do work. It's not a lot. Um, 
But we tend to see people kind of use it in bursts. So they might have a post and then they'll go help people for an hour or two or a day or two, and then they kind of disappear and then they might come back. Um, but, you know, I don't even recommend necessarily using something like Coco on a daily basis. I think it's good for certain moments in your life. And I think it's really important for people to have an experience like this. Um, but, you know, it's hard to make this stuff easy and it's hard to make it comparatively engaging and effortless as, you know, a social feed that you sort of absorb passively. I want to go back to something you said about Facebook that you had talked to people at mm -hmm. Facebook who said they were envious um, mm -hmm. that you could do what you do with, in terms of, you know, I guess kind of um, managing conversation on the platform. And I just, I just find that really interesting because yes, hindsight 2020, I was not there at the creation of Facebook, um, but it kind of seems like something they could have done too <laughs> or could potentially still do. And I just think it's in an interesting choice of words and an interesting place to be in. Um, and I know they've gotten themselves into this position where they, they are a content creator, but they're not, and they are a free speech platform, but they're not. Um, and I won't ask you to speak for them, but I just, I just find that really interesting. And I wonder if, if it's the business piece or what it is that like prevents other social tech platforms from being more like Coco. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a good question. And you know, that, that comment was one engineer in one meeting. <laughs> I wasn't talking to Mark Zuckerberg at the time. Um, I think the ultimate thing, like the root cause of, of any of the struggles these platforms have ultimately is their business model. Um, it's really hard to work around a business model that is based on engagement and attention. Um, I think once you have a business model like that, that is the crux of your company or your product, um, it's really hard to make some of the decisions or impose the constraints that um, might have kind of more societal benefits, let's say. I think, you know, there there could be platforms that are differentiated in imposing these constraints, but yeah, generally I think ultimately it comes down to the, the business model. And so when, when Coco started, we were a for-profit, we're now a non-profit and we thought really hard about the business model and, you know, really thinking about, do we monetize our users? Do we monetize the data they're generating? Do we make it ad supported? And you really have to be careful about what the, the monetization strategy is because whether you like it or not, if you're for profit, your company is going to be working in some way to um, hit those metrics. Um, and so we tried to be really intentional about our business model. Um, and I think that was pretty important. The pandemic, the ongoing, never ending pandemic. Um, how has that affected Coco? Um, I would say we have more volume for sure. And just more on a personal level, you know, I read a ton of 
content from Coco. I'm, I'm constantly like working to tune our crisis classifiers. So I see a lot of the you know, most intense content. And we have a, a young audience now. Um, our, I think our average age is, is 18, but we have a lot of people younger than that who come on through the platforms that we intercept them on. And I just see so many posts um, about young people really struggling. And what I tend to see is they're struggling because the parents are struggling and stressed out of their minds. And so, you know, you can imagine a scene where, you know, people are locked down, the, 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 the individual's not able to kind of go out of their little world, their house, the parents are stressed out. And you get these like really intense family dynamics that um, I'm seeing people disclose and talk about that are, are pretty heartbreaking. Um, you know, one person said something like, I just desperately want someone to hug me. I feel touch starved is what they said. That was during kind of the height of the lockdown. So you also have that kind of sense of isolation and loneliness that comes up. Yeah. Wow. That's sad. That's moving for sure. Um, so I am asking everyone I talk to for this show to leave listeners with a little bit of hope. Um, and I honestly feel like a lot of what we've talked about was pretty hopeful, even if it's kind of in the midst of hard stuff, like what you just said. Um, but do, if you have any specific hope for the future of feeling and the future of empathy and our tech obsessed world, what would you say that that is? <laughs> yeah, I, I tend to be a pretty hopeful person. I like to think I would say, for me, what I get to observe every day is that humans have an incredible capacity to be incredibly kind. And I think it's rewarding for people as well. Um, and it doesn't happen, you know, spontaneously necessarily, but with just a little bit of structure and changing your environment, um, you know, it can be something that we can engineer to happen more frequently and, and more deeply. Yeah, I guess having more opportunities for kindness. So how can people find COCO? If if someone wants to join and wants to do that work and answer questions or ask questions, how can they do that? Yeah, the, the easiest way right now is to go to coco.ai, um, our website. There should be kind of a, a sign-up um, button you can click. Most of our users come straight from the social platforms where we're sort of intercepting them in, in real time. So it's not the kind of app you download, but there, there are ways to, to find it um, through our website. Right now, our, our focus really is to serve people who are crying out for help online. So we haven't sort of opened it up on, you know, an app or even a, a standard messenger. So People who submit their emails there, they'll be notified once that's ready. Um, but yeah, we'll roll it out. You can you can find it on on Tumblr if you go to cocobot.tumblr.com, for example. You can find it there. Um, we have Cocobot running on Telegram, which is like a super anonymous um, messenger platform. You can find it there too. But um, best to just sort of sign up and we'll send email blasts when it's more accessible for the kind of random average person. Awesome. Love talking to you. It was great to talk to you a few years ago, and I hope we can 
continue to stay in touch. Um, and I just put my email in there. I, I'm not sure if it already was, but we're uh, doing a major website revamp right now. That's partly why it says get early access. It's like an old placeholder. Um, gotcha. Yeah. <laughs> well, nice cool. to talk to you as well. And I, I loved your book. I, I just kind of flipped through it before the call just to refresh my memory. But um, and excited about your podcast. Uh, Thank you. Series. I appreciate you saying that. I I feel like it disappeared into the ether. So it's nice when someone says they actually read it. Yeah, it's on my bookshelf. Okay, cool. All right, well, thank you again. All right, sounds good. Bye. Have a good one. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Future of Feeling podcast. As a reminder, this is a limited series right now, and I am the sole producer. I'd love to keep making it, and you can help by following on Spotify and sharing with a friend or two. You can also send feedback, questions, and guest suggestions by heading to caitlinugalik.com. That's K-A-I-T-L-I-N-U-G-O-L-I-K.com. And click the email me button. Talk soon.